0: Morning, New Spring, Good morning. and Happy Father's Day to all you dads and grandpas out there. Our series is called the Contest, and it's all about the struggle that we have with the dark side of spiritual warfare. And unlike a lot of series that have like six or five individual talks, this is really just one long talk. And I'm going to cut it at the end, and we'll pick it up next weekend. Last week, if you were here, you, you learned that in our, in our study of, of the conflict that we're in, and all of us experience it, we feel pushback, we feel conflict, we feel tension in our life, and we wonder where it comes from. We learned two key verses, and those two verses are going to be repeated in every talk that I give in this series. The first thing that we learned last weekend is that we never fight against people. That is, if you're a Christ follower, your enemy is never people. It's never people people. That is so hard to get because we think it is, you know. It feels like our enemy is people, but your enemy is never people. If your your enemy isn't the person you're married to, it's not your kids, it's not your parents. You say, Mark, I know who the enemy is. We're having dinner with them today. It's my (laughs) in-laws. No, no, you know. I mean, it's not the people you work with. It's not the neighborhood community. I mean, it it is, and, and this is what we talked about last week. We said that, you know, The dark side, Satan in particular, he just has to laugh all the way to the bank because he makes us think that our enemy is people. We fight against people, screw up relationships, and it even gets into the church because oftentimes the church winds up fighting the very people that God sent us to give good news to. we we got to understand that people are victims, you know. People are victims of the dark side. They're fellow victims. Why would we go after fellow victims? And so if if other people, you know, they, they may believe that they are our enemies, we'll just let them hopefully learn in time that they're not, but if you're God's follower, your, pe- your enemies are never people. Let, let's read it again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle—that's the fight that we have in this life. It's never against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is a euphemism. It's an expression. It just means people. So no matter who you're fighting today, you, you can you can say if I'm a Christ follower, I have no enemies. I have no enemies. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not against my wife, I'm not against my husband, I'm not against my kids, I'm not against my neighbors, I'm not against the people who don't believe like me, I'm not against the Republicans, I'm not against the Democrats, I'm not against the Tea Party, I'm not against labor, I'm not against management, I'm not against, boy, isn't that hard, see? I mean, that's a challenge because we're saying, oh, I do have enemies. No, not if you're a Christ follower. Your enemy, even the people that believe diametrically opposite to you, if you're a God follower, your enemy's not atheists. not, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But in the back part of that verse, we saw what our struggle is against. And it's hard for me because I want to tell you something. I'm just going to be real straight with you. And I've told you this many times. I am not particularly a spiritual person. My wife is. I mean, she she just grasps things spiritually. I'm not. I'm a pragmatist. I'm a practical person. I can tend to have just a little dash of skepticism in my life. And and the kind of person that says, lay the evidence on the table. Just let me see it for myself. I don't know if I have any soul brothers or soul sisters in the room like that, but that's a little bit what I'm like. Now, I believe the Word of God. I love Jesus. I believe, I hope, I I don't want to, but I believe I would die for the things that are in the Bible. So I do believe Scripture. But spiritual things do not come easily for me, and faith does not come easy for me. The things in my spiritual life, my relationship with God has been a journey, and it continues to be a journey. Now, when some people talk about spiritual warfare and demons and all that, they can talk about it like it's their native language. You need to understand it's a learned language for me because it is a challenge for me to realize and to recognize some of these things the Bible is talking about. But here's the deal. It's in the Word of God. I have to accept it. The Bible tells tells me that my enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's the ruler's authorities powers of the dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I know when it talks about rulers, it's not talking about presidents, mayors, city council people. I mean, obviously, because you've already understood that it, it's not people. Rulers has to be something It's not people. So do authorities and so on. And what we learned last week is that all four of those terminologies refer to demonic spirits, but different aspects of demonic spirits. Remember, see, this is such a hard thing for us. We draw a lot of what we think about demons from Hollywood, some of you right now are thinking about the movie Constantine, you know, or you thinking about, you know, a vampire movie or something like that. Demons, demons are not even physical. They're not even material. They're spirits. Like you and I are spirits, like God is a spirit. But they don't have bodies. So consequently, they are angels. We'll read about this in just a moment. They're angels who basically followed Satan in his insurrection and God dumped them out, and they're in our sphere. But we learn that these four terminologies have, have different things to say about who demons are. Rulers has to do with their position. Authorities has to do with their supernatural evil power. Um, The uh, expression powers of the dark world is the one that freaks me out. It indicates that demons are assigned to certain places, certain countries, certain states, cities, whatever. And then spiritual forces of evil means agents of depravity. We discussed last week that the decline that we see morally in our world today isn't happening in a vacuum. It's, it's, it is a um, it is a construed it is a, a, a calculated process that's taking place because of demonic influence on in our culture so that's what we're fighting now, <laughs> when I begin to study this, my first thought was this isn't a fair fight now if I'm fighting people, that might be a fair fight you know and, and beyond that, if I'm using the weapons that humans use, like icing people out and getting even and losing my temper, and making hand signs, and things like that, that, you know, we want to say that's a fair fight, but when I start thinking about the fact that I don't fight people, and I'm fighting these demonic powers, I want to say, wait a minute, God, that's not fair of you to put me in a situation where I've got to fight evil spirits that are all more powerful than I am. It was at that point that God led me to the second most important verse of this series. And when I read this, I thought, oh, I'm right about one thing. It's not a fair fight, but it's just backward. Listen to this. For though we live in the world, that's this is in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Some of you have a translation that says, for even though we're human, we don't fight in human ways. The weapons, verse 4, we fight with are not the weapons of the world, not guns, knives, bombs, or you could go into the emotional sphere and say it's not vengeance, it's not words, it's not attitudes. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, is this verse on the screen behind me? Okay, good. I want you to read, I'm going to stop in just a moment, I want you to read the next two words. On the contrary, they have... Whoa. Well, what does the word divine mean? That means God. Well, this is cool because I'm fighting angels and I'm concerned because I'm overmatched, but it's okay because God says, even though we're human, we don't fight with human weapons. God is saying, I'm going to loan you some weapons uh, weapons on loan from heaven. (laughs) That means it's not a fair fight for them. God weapon. I know Wichita is a military city, and a lot of you, you know, you know what Jane's catalog of military hardware is. It'd be kind of cool to see what heaven's catalog of military hardware is. So, God is saying, Okay, Mark, you don't fight people, but don't worry. I mean, you're fighting evil forces in the dark sphere, but don't worry about that because God is saying, I'm going to give you a weapon on loan from heaven. And then look at this. They, these weapons, have the divine power. To demolish strongholds. What is a stronghold? Well, you need to know how Satan works. And guys, I get so, I try to keep my cool about this. I, I, I get so frustrated with how Christians get off into superstition today. There's, for some reason, there's sort of a neo-superstition going on in our culture today. About demons and, you know, getting into houses and things like that. You know, Satan is not into making stuff go bump in the night. He's not into making people's heads spin around, okay? I mean, Satan is into doing stuff that really matters. We know how Satan works. The Bible, I mean, this has been true from the very beginning of time. Satan is the father of lies. And here's the deal. A lot of you are afraid of Satan or you're afraid of demons, I just want you to understand very clearly, very rarely, I believe, is there actual damage done by Satan to us specifically or to the demons. That very little, Very rarely do demons do damage to us physically. It is what they lure us into doing to ourselves. And beyond that, it is what they lure us into doing that puts us on the wrong side of God so that God has to come and bring discipline in our lives. But this is how Satan works. Like I say, do doesn't make stuff go bump in the night. He, you know, he, he's not into making people's heads spin around like in the exorcist. Satan tells lies. He spins lies into your life and my life and into the culture that are calculated to bluff us out of what is precious to us one of the most powerful bible study laws that you can use is the law of first mention because the first time you read something in the bible what you discover is it pretty well works that way throughout the rest of the bible well if you were to employ the law of first mention you would go to the first time satan ever worked in somebody's life who did he work in? whose life did he work in even adams right did he hit him did he hurt him did he do anything to him physically no he just lured them into doing something that destroyed their lives and that is how he works. Now, he spins lies into our culture and into our world all the time. But he has certain lies that he thinks are so powerful that they hold you in, in his grasp and there's nothing that you can do about it. He tells certain lies that he thinks are so powerful they're the final word and you can't go any farther. Last week I gave you a cultural example of one of those lies, which is evolution. We're taught that we're the product of cosmic rolls, the random rolls of the cosmic dice. That we're here by the product of accident. And, of course, you think about that and the ridiculous aspect of that, especially, and I believe, you know, I know evolution occurs within species, but I'm talking about, you know, one species doesn't become another species. And beyond that, we, we didn't all start with primordial soup and then wind up at the sophistication where we are. But if you were Satan, you would want people to believe that. You would want people to believe that we're here as a product of accident. And, and so, you know, I'm, all, I'm an old debater. So whenever I, I have friends who, evol- who believe in, in, in evolution in that sense that, you know, we, we all came from nothing... Always, okay, put your evidence on the table. And they'll say, no, I don't need to do that because smart people believe in evolution. And I'm saying, well, all right, why do smart people believe in evolution? They just do. How about throwing some evidence on the table? Well, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna waste time on you. If you don't believe in evolution, you're just stupid. Why is all the name-calling in that scenario? Because Satan feels like that's a stronghold. He feels like that's a lie that he's told that you just, no sense in, this, we don't have to discuss it. And there's some other lies in our culture today that are ridiculous, But we just don't discuss it. We don't go any further. It's a stronghold. That's a cultural stronghold. But there are personal strongholds in our lives. Like for some of us, he will tell us, your marriage is just finished. You just married a jerk. And he's never going to change. She's never going to be any different. Don't even go to counseling. Don't even try. Don't waste your time. Just go back in the open market and find somebody else. Your kid's always going to be on drugs. Just give up on him. Don't just, just kick him out of the house. I mean, these are the kinds of lies that Satan tells us that he feels like that there's no business to challenge. They're strongholds. And that's what we're fighting against. Because God is saying, look, you don't fight against people. I mean, you fight against strongholds, you fight against the lies, you fight against the influence of the lies, not people, not even the tellers of the lies, but you fight against the lies with divine weapons, and the Bible says God's weapons have the power to demolish strongholds. Well, today, I want to start the talk, It's Not a Fair Fight, and next week, it'll be It's Not a Fair Fight Part 2, and then the week after that, it'll be It's Not a Fair Fight Part 3. I don't usually do that. But there's a subtext to my, to my talk today, and my, my title is It's Not a Fair Fight Going Nuclear. Because I want to ask you the question: what kind of weapon would scare the devil? What kind of weapon would scare a demon? You know, when we think about, you know, a lot of times I, I grew up, you know, Halloween, you know, we dress up like devils and everything, and we go around with the idea that the, the devil scares people. But if you wanted to scare the devil, if you want to scare Satan, realizing that he's not the caricature in the red suit and the horns, that he's a sophisticated spirit being, what would you use to scare demons? Well, you know it wouldn't be a weapon of the world, because he's not hes not of the world, he's spirit. And beyond that, you know it wouldn't be superstitious. You know, I grew up in the days where you stay up late and you watch the old black and white vampire movies. Anybody old like me, you know? You watch Dracula, you know? And, and the vampires go around biting people on the neck, turning people into vampires and stuff, and but eventually there's the hero or the heroine, and, and, and Dracula comes, and he tries to bite the person, and the person holds up the sign of the cross, and Dracula does like this. And, and, and I think that sometimes there are people, even in the Christian church, that have the idea that that's all you got to do. you got to learn the word to say, or, to, or some kind of amulet or charm, or order some handkerchief from some television preacher, and you can just wave it, and the devil will run and, and, and I hope you don't take me wrong here, but I've got good friends, personal friends, that believe all you got to do is just say the name of Jesus. And listen, if you mean I'm calling on Jesus, that is powerful. But it's like, I want to tell you something. There are a lot of churches today that are saying the name of Jesus, and they're not scaring Satan at all. Look, let me be real straight with you. You're going to have to do warfare. And it's, it's more practical than that. What kind of weapon would scare Satan? Today we're hauling out the big one. We're hauling out the big one. And this is what's really cool. You did not even have to leave the building to get it. You did not even have to shift in your seat. You have it right now with you. And it's something. Well, let me tell you why I chose the title Going Nuclear. It's not that I have an affinity for nuclear weapons. They trouble me. But the only time that nuclear weapons, as you know, have ever been used in conflict were in August of 1945. We'd already got victory over Europe, but the Japanese wanted to fight on. They had emperor worship and, 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 and ancestor worship as part of their religious culture, and they believed it would have been a shameful thing to, have, to surrender Japan. And, and, our, and, and the Allied generals looked at, looked at this, this war in the Pacific, and they, they realized that we could lose, we could lose uh, soldiers in the, in the high six figures, and, the, and they were trying to think about how can we end the war, and, and Truman had just become president, the common man from independence, Eisenhower, I mean, excuse me. Uh, uh, Roosevelt had passed away, and and Truman had not been prepped for the presidency, and he, he got swept into the White House with the death of Roosevelt. And one of the first things he got told is, "We have the we have the A bomb." And he made, I guess, probably the, if not the one of the toughest decisions that any president has ever had to make. He decided to drop the atom bomb on Japan in the hopes of ending the war early. And we did. We dropped two of them. The first one on August 6, 1945. The second one August 9, 1945, on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, of course, they just obliterated the city. And the Japanese, they really did not... They didn't know what was going on, and, and, and this is a side note and probably more than you want to know, but the Japanese didn't know how many we had. We had already just wiped out two of their cities, and, and they didn't know, and they had captured a bomber pilot. For some reason, they tried to torture this bomber pilot to find out how many nuclear weapons we had, and this poor guy didn't want to be tortured, so he just made up a number. He said, we've got 100, and we're going to drop the next one on Tokyo. Well, we only had two. We <laughs> We dropped them. <laughs> The third one was coming online in late August, and the fourth was coming online in September. But I don't know if that had an impact or not, but 15 days later, the Japanese decided that their emperor wasn't God, and their ancestors would just have to deal with it, and and they surrendered. But here's the whole point of the reason why I go into that history. The reason why the, uh, the nuclear bomb was so effective was, number one, the Japanese had no comprehension of it. They understood incendiary bombing. But they didn't understand the nuclear bomb. It was something that at that moment, they, they had a nuclear problem, program, but it had failed. They didn't have any comprehension of it. And secondly, they had no answer for it. The reason why this is so important today, this particular weapon is so big, and the reason I've called it going nuclear is, number one, Satan has no comprehension of it. And number two, he and all his demons have no answer for it. That's why it's so big. Before I get into the weapon, let me, I've made a point. I'm an old debater, so I know what it's like to make a point, and I expect to have evidence, and I expect you to expect me to bring evidence. I have just told you that there is a weapon you can use on Satan that he can't comprehend. And and I would think that you would be sitting out there thinking, thinking, Mark, wait a minute, Satan is a very sophisticated angel. He's been dealing with people for thousands of years how can it be that there is something that we can do that he would not comprehend? Well, let's give, let me give you a little bit of history of who Satan is, and I think it will help you understand why he can't comprehend this. Let me give you two scriptures, because the Bible tells us that Satan did not start out evil. He started out as an angel God created, perhaps the most beautiful of the angels, perhaps the most powerful of the angels. And evidently there was a time, where, and, and who knows how long, where Satan did what God created him to do. But there was a moment when he became full of himself. Whatever God creates, if it's living, God gives that a, a, a person or that angel a free will. Because God doesn't want robots. He wants people to love him and worship him from the heart. So even with the angels, he gave the angels a will. And, and Satan, after a while, became full of himself and decided that God shouldn't get all the worship. And he, he decided that, after all, he should get, clip off a piece of that worship, too. I'm going to read you two scriptures, one from the book of Ezekiel and then one from the book of Isaiah. The reason why I read these two chapters to you or these two texts to you is Ezekiel talks about God kicking Satan out from God's perspective. And then in Isaiah, we're going to get into the very expressions that Satan used in his mind. Okay, let's, let's start with the Ezekiel text. God says, you were the anointed cherub. From the day of your creation, you were sheer perfection. And then imperfection, evil, was detected in you. God said, I threw you disgraced off the mountain of God. I threw you out, you the anointed angel cherub. Your beauty went to your head. You corrupted wisdom by using it to get worldly fame. I threw you to the ground. And Jesus would say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now in Isaiah, we get what Satan was feeling on the inside. You said in your heart, Listen to this, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. That's an expression for the angels of God. Satan was saying, I'll be above all the other angels. I will make myself like the most high. Sounds like an NBA prima donna, right? But God said, but you're brought down to the depths of the pit. For the first time in God's creation, we see four things. We see arrogance. We see rebellion. We see stubbornness. Selfishness. Now let me ask you a question about your experience watching people with arrogance, rebellion, stubbornness, and self. Do you know anybody like that? Doesn't it leave them with blind spots? you know anybody that's rebellious? Have anybody that you work with that's just rebellious? You probably work with a bunch of perfect people, right? Do you know anybody who's rebellious? Isn't it true that you can see somebody that's smart? They probably scored 30 on their SAT when they were in high school. They're bright. They have a master's degree. Bright person. But they just have an attitude. And isn't it interesting how that they can do the stupidest stuff and you look at them and you say, what are you missing? Arrogance, rebellion, stubbornness, and selfishness will leave you with blind spots. Now, remember, Satan is not God's equal. It's not that he is God's counterpart. It's not that God is the antagonist and and Satan is the equal antagonist. It's not like that at all. God made Satan. He's an angel. His power is far inferior to God's. But Satan is very smart. But he's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. And because Satan is full of himself, he has blind spots. Now, remember, I've told you that there is a weapon that you have to use on him that he can't process. He can't understand. And the reason why he can't understand it, even though he's very smart, is because he's got a blind spot. Rebellion and stubbornness have left him with a blind spot. Now, here's where it's going to get personal. His blind spot has to do with the way he interacts with you. He is rebellious. He is arrogant, he is stubborn, he is selfish, he is convinced that all of God's creation is arrogant, rebellious, stubborn, and selfish, which is why he tempts you to be those things. So he believes everybody's like him. Thankfully, we have proof for that, we have a tremendous insight into how Satan thinks about you and me from Job chapter 1. Hey, I'm, I'm usually not into my old series, I don't ever listen to my old talks, it just discourages me. But I got one series that I will listen to, okay? Well, actually two, the one on Joseph. And then there's a series that I did several years ago, I don't know, a lot of you weren't here then, called Silence on the Book of Job. And I don't know if it's in the bookstore or not, but I got to tell you, that is a series that I, I, the regret of my life is only talk three weeks on that. I wish I'd talked six weeks on that. But in the series Silence, I spent a good time in Job chapter 1. What we learn from Job chapter 1 is that even though Satan has been expelled from his position among the angels, he still has access to God. Because in Job chapter 1, God is conducting a staff meeting. And all the angels are appearing before God and they're reporting in. And Satan comes along with them. One of Satan's names in the Bible means accuser. So evidently when Satan comes before God, the primary reason he comes before God is to accuse you and me and anyone else. And Lord knows you and I have probably given him a lot to work with, right? So God is conducting a staff meeting in Job chapter 1 among the angels. And Satan comes and God sees him coming. And God jumps him because God knows why he came. And before he can start off talking about people, God just, he says, hey, have you checked my boy Job out? Now Job is an interesting character. Talk about interesting juxtapositions. Job was both the richest man in the world and the godliest man in the world. We don't usually associate both those things together. But, you know, it's not a sin to be rich. Not if you're rich toward God. And Job was. The richest guy in the world. I mean, you know, if you saw Bentley in the poorest part of town, he wasn't, there wasn't somebody selling drugs, drugs. It was Job delivering groceries. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. And God, before, before Satan could get there, God just said, you check my boy Job out. Now, it's Satan's answer that gives us insight into how he looks at you and me, and I don't know why the time moves as fast as it does on the weekend. For some reason, it does. Okay, here we go. Satan retorted, So do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why no one ever had it so good? You pamper him like a pet, make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything he does he can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what. Oh, Satan's got a blind spot. He thinks everybody's like him. He said, tell me about Job. You know what? He's like me. You just give him everything, but if you took everything away from him, he'd flip you off just like me. And that's what the book of Job is about. How do you go nuclear on Satan? What weapon do you have in your arsenal right now that he can't understand and he has no answer for? I'm going to read it to you out of two verses in the Bible. The first one comes from the book of James. The second one comes from the book of 1 Peter. They almost sound alike but there's little subtle nuances of difference. So let me read both of them to you. Okay, you ready for this? James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Oh, submit yourself to God. The word submit comes from the Greek word tasso, Hupo is like our word hypo. It means underneath. It means to line up underneath. I mean, isn't this interesting? And, and this, this is my challenge. And, and I woke up in the night praying. and I said, God, how am I going to explain to modern day Americans, that something that sounds weak is really a nuclear weapon. How am I gonna explain in our world that strength is taking charge and showing who you are? How am I gonna explain in that kind of world that the most powerful weapon we have is surrender? Lining up under God. And you know what the Bible says? If you line up under God, it doesn't say Satan will walk off. It says he will run off. In fact, the Greek word means he will vanish. I mean, this goes nuclear on him. Why? Because he doesn't understand it. He thinks everybody is in it for themselves. He thinks everybody's in it to elevate themselves like he's got a blind spot. He just doesn't believe that anybody wants to worship God. He doesn't believe that anybody will bow down before God and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. And when you do that, you go nuclear on him, and he can't understand it. And he doesn't have anything to match it. Peter put it this way. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. That he may lift you up in due time. Look at the next verse. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Those are two verses back to back where God says if you submit yourself or humble yourself before God, you can tell the devil to leave and he'll run because he just doesn't get it. In fact, you know, I'm learning this in my life. I'm learning to threaten Satan. He starts messing with me. I say, if you don't stop it, I'm going to fall on my face. I'm going to hurt you bad. I'm going to hurt you bad. I'm just going to get humble before God. If you don't stop messing with me, I'm going to look at my life and see if anything's not lined up with God. And I'm going to line it up with God. You better leave me alone. <laughs> Guys, I'm, I'm so in trouble with the clock. I'm only halfway through. Isn't that bad? i got five minutes. I cannot read these two stories to you from the Bible. I'm going to tell them to you, and I'm going to give you the coordinates so you can read them when you go home today, okay? The first one is in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Excuse me, 21. I'm going to try to explain something quickly. I have told you that Satan is arrogant, rebellious, stubborn, and selfish. How many of us feel like We are arrogant, rebellious, stubborn, and selfish. Uh, You guys are spending precious part of your weekend in here to learn about God. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say probably none of us. we're, We're not rebellious people. We're not stubborn people. We're not selfish. We're not arrogant. Satan understands that there are a lot of people he can never convince to be like him, his concern is to get us to behave like him for a season so that he can screw up a big part of our lives. I'm going to read you about a guy who behaved rebellious, stubborn, selfish, and, and arrogant. And yet he is one of the greatest people in the Bible. In fact, God would say he's a man after my own heart. His name is King David. Here's a guy who, who went down to fight a giant with a bag of rocks when he's a teenage kid. A very humble man. Most of us know about his affair with the next door neighbor. And, and that was a bad thing. But a lot of us don't know about something that David did that probably caused more trouble than that. I want to tell you about it for a moment. Could I tell you that I have some guesses about David? I mean, I read about his life, and there's a lot of stuff I sort of read between the lines. And and I think that David dealt with insecurity. Do any of us deal with insecurity? Maybe you just have found yourself in a promotion and you you serve at a level that you you really feel like deep down inside you really didn't deserve to get there. But just through good circumstances, you wound up at a level and and now you function. And maybe you don't have the education to sustain it or maybe you don't have the background to sustain it. But here you are and, and sometimes, or maybe you married somebody and you think, how did somebody like me get somebody like her? How did somebody like me get somebody like him? And the next thing you know, we get insecure and we begin to grasp and worry about it when God called David to be king, he was a shepherd boy. That wasn't a real high job. He didn't have a Ph.D. from the university. And beyond that, he was the eighth of eight sons. Most, most times, you're going to do anything great, it was the law of primogeniture back then. It was the oldest kid. And I think that David was the sentimental favorite in Israel. I think people loved David. That, that, as their king, I mean, they felt like they knew David. I mean, it was like a first-name basis. I mean, this is our, it's our boy. He's one among us. And I think that David enjoyed the love, but at times it shaped him because he wanted to say, hey, you know what? I've been a really good king. I think that other nations, they looked at their kings like they were elevated and much higher than them. And, and I think that when people saw David coming, they had an affection. It was like one of us. And there were times when David wanted to say, you know, I did a pretty good job. This thing's a lot better. This this kingdom's a whole lot better than when I took it. And some stuff that's not in the Bible, God just doesn't include all the facts. Evidently, somewhere along the way, God had said to David, look, I'm going to give you victory. In fact, 1 Chronicles 18 says the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. Here was a guy that everything he touched worked. The Lord gave him victory. But evidently God had said to David, there's one thing I don't want you to do. I don't ever want you to number your army. I don't ever want you to trust in the size of your army. I don't don't want your enemy to be freaked out by the size of it. So just don't number the army. Just trust me. But evidently, at one of these moments of insecurity and David not feeling like he was getting his props, David went to his, Joab, his general Joab, and he's like chief of staff, and he said, Hey, I want to number the troops. And Joab is not the most spiritual man in the Bible. Joab is not above bending the rules. If I had a prayer request, I wouldn't take it to Joab. But even Joab said, Please don't do that, sir. Aren't all the army God's people? Don't? Please don't do that. You're going to bring judgment on Israel. Please don't do that. But David insisted, okay, we've got arrogance, we've got stubbornness, self. And Joab went out and did it. He came back and said, well, we got over a million. But Joab, the Bible says, was so revulsed by the order, he didn't even number the soldiers in two of the tribes. And the Bible simply says, God punished Israel. How many of you have been, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have been to the Vietnam Memorial? You see how much rock it takes to write over 50,000 names? I'm overwhelmed every time I see that. Do you realize more people died in Israel as a result of David's decision than died in Vietnam? See, Satan never, but look at this. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Satan never personally laid a glove on David. He just lured him into behaving in a rebellious way. And then because Satan's experience with God, Satan knows how God has to react to pride. He lured David into a place where David would have to get on the wrong side of God. I am dead right now with time, okay? But I I just got to bring one thing to you. Before we got into the part in, in James about humbling ourselves before God, the Bible says God Resists the proud. Do you know what that means? Let me give it to you. The Greek language is very colorful. Resists, the Greek word for resist, it's like our image up here. It means God sets himself in battle array against. You know, this soldier up here on the horse, he's not going to a Sunday school picnic, right? He's getting ready to conduct business. That is exactly what, when it says God resists, it means God. It's like he arrays his army against the proud. The word proud means the person that stretches his neck up above everybody else. I deserve better than this. I've worked harder than everybody else. I'm not being treated fairly. I need to do something like numbering Israel. I need to do something where I can get the recognition I deserve. I'm going to lift my head up. And what Satan knew was that God sets himself in battle array against the proud. David wasn't proud. Satan just lured him into acting proud, and he knew what God would have to do. Even with his beloved David. Story two. This one comes out of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. How many of you are leaders? I am a leader. I know what it's like. I have to function as primary communicator, but six days a week I'm chief executive officer. I know what it's like to have a lot of people look at me and say, What do we do? And if you're a leader, you know what that feeling is like. It's like, I gotta have the plan, I gotta have the answer. And I think that one of the issues that leaders have is that sometimes we get lifted up in pride because it's like the enemy enemy says, hey, everybody's looking at you. you got to come up with something. The king's name was Jehoshaphat. He was the descendant of King David. And one day he got the word that armies were amassed on his northern border. And two of the cruelest people that Israel ever faced, the Moabites and the Ammonites, were part of that army. These were mean people. Both nations were fathered in incest. They were as wicked as you could imagine and worse. So I don't know if you've ever had a problem that you just woke up to and you think this problem's bigger than me. And when Jehoshaphat heard that all these armies were amassed on his northern border, he didn't have anything to do. He didn't know what to do. He had no match for it. <laughs> when you read the story, the Bible says in verse 18, Jehoshaphat, the king, bowed with his face toward the ground, and then all the people of Judah, all the nation, did the same thing. Hey, when you're a leader, it's not an easy thing to say, I don't know what to do. But Jehoshaphat, as an example before his nation, unlike David, Unlike David that got full of himself and lifted his head and said, I want to do something to show my stuff. Here's the king that said, look, I don't know what to do. I'm not ashamed for my people to see I don't know what to do. I'm just going to fall on my face before God. And Jehoshaphat said, God, this is over my head, and I can't handle this. Our eyes are upon you. And the people did the same thing. And then one of the prophets stood up, and God gave him a word that is so powerful for you and me. The prophet said, the battle is not yours, it's God's. And then the king did something that is one of the strangest things that anybody has ever done in military history. After depending upon God and bowing before God and saying, God, we don't know what to do, he got his army ready to go out and meet the opposing invading army. But you know what he did? He put the choir out front. How would you feel about that, praised him? Can you imagine how this must have freaked out the enemy armies? Man, they don't know. Is it going to be the archers out front? Is it going to be the charioteers? Is it going to be the infantry? But before any of the soldiers show up, they go out and a choir is singing. And what does the choir sing? The choir is singing praise to God. This is a people that is fully submitted to God. They're saying, We're so submitted to God that instead of putting archers and soldiers out there. We don't think the battle is ours. We don't think we're fighting against people. We're going to send people out to praise God. And I guess God looked down from heaven and said, we have to do something about this. (laughs) And verse 22 says, As they begin to sing and praise, the Lord sent ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. And if you keep reading, when the people of Judah got out there, they just found a bunch of dead corpses. God just said, I think I I I just want to hear this concert. I'll take care of the invading army. But there's nothing new here. (laughs) Remember when the Israelites were at the Red Sea? Pharaoh's army chasing them? What did God say? Exodus 14, 13. Be still. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. How many of us love Psalm 46, 10? Be still and know that I am God. If you want to go nuclear on the enemy, here's what the Bible says, and I'll close with this. Humble yourself. I want to go to Peter's text for a moment. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, please, if you've missed everything I've said, would you just please capture and own what I'm going to say in the next two or three minutes. In the Greek language, where the Bible says humble yourself, it is in the passive tense, which means allow yourself to be humbled. Okay. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to today, but if you've lived any length of time, this world has a way of humbling you, right? I don't care who you are, I don't care how much money you got, I don't care how beautiful you are, I don't care how much education you have. This world has got a way of showing you that it's bigger than you are. Now, when that happens, we can do one of three things. We can do what most people do and that's to resist that. And say, "Wait a minute, I refuse to be humbled." I'm going to cover this, I'm going to cover this up and act like I wasn't hurt. I'm going to be Defensive, all kinds of strategies we employ to say, I refuse to be humbled. Or we can accept the humiliation. We can allow ourselves to be humbled, but not under the mighty hand of God. We can just allow ourselves to be humbled. And at that point, we just give in and say, okay, I'm a loser. I accept it. I'm defeated. I'm going to always. Be with losers. I'm, on, I'm just going to date jerks the rest of my life. I just accept it. I'm just stupid. I'm just fat. I'm just a loser. I mean, I have just accept it. I've allowed myself to be humble. But that's not what God says. God says, allow yourself to be humbled, but under the mighty hand of God. Now, the mighty hand of God, the only, only, Peter is the only one to use that expression in the New Testament. That is an Old Testament expression. When the Jews would talk about deliverance, they would use that expression, the mighty hand of God. Time and time again, they would talk about how the mighty hand of God took them out of Egypt, how the mighty hand of God delivered them from trouble. It was that was, Clearly they knew that God didn't have a physical hand. That was just their way of saying, God delivers. God brings his people out of trouble. And This is what the Bible is saying. Look, allow yourself to be humbled, but humbled under the hand of God that has the power to get you out of trouble. What you're saying when you're humbling under the hand of God is you're saying, I may be down today, and I may be hurt today, but I want you to know I'm not a loser because I am under the hand of God, and the hand of God has the power to bring me out of this. The power of God has the power to heal me. It has the power to get me a job, has the power to put my family back together again. It has the power to demolish strongholds. I don't mind being humbled if I'm under God's mighty hand. I'm lining up with him. I'll tell you, you do that, you go nuclear on the devil. He can't comprehend it. And all the demons of hell, they have no match for you and it's something you can do right where you're sitting today. You don't even have to shift in your seat. You can just say, all right, I'm lining up my life with God. What's out of line today? Is it your sex life? Is it your dating life? Is it the way you handle money? Is it the way you handle time? Is it that God doesn't have any place in your everyday life? What's not in line with God today? I want to tell you, you line up with God, you go nuclear. Oh, i can't believe how i went into overtime when you pick up your kids just please tell them it's mark's fault all right i'm sorry about that. i got to do this before i go it could be you're here today and you say mark i've just never accepted jesus remember this god loves you jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins he arose from the grave to prove that he's god and if you will trust your life to him he will forgive you he'll save you take you to heaven and make you god's child it's all a gift. If you're willing to ask for that today, I'm going to pray a prayer that you can pray with me. It's just a prayer that reaches out to God and puts your confidence. It's a submission prayer to God. And God will receive you into his family. It's not religion. It's a gift. You ready? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the grave. Would you save me, forgive me, make me God's child? I don't want my old way of life. I want you to rewrite my life in Jesus' name.